see if I could. Lord bless you. Good to see you too, man. Good morning. Good to be here. I may have relayed this story to you before, but I think of it every time I say good to be here. Henry told it to us. One time he introduced a really elderly preacher, and he said, um, it's good to have so-and-so here this morning. And When the old man got up, he said, it's good to be anywhere at my age. <laughs> so uh, would you turn to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8, we'll begin reading at verse 31, a portion of scripture I know is probably as familiar to you as any other scripture, but uh, despite the fact I had two or three other scriptures in mind to preach when I got here, this is the one that this morning it seemed like the right place to go. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril? Or sword, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now I preached from this text of scripture two weeks ago back home and I entitled it, All Things Freely Given to Us in Christ. And when I got done, I realized I had never actually touched on that particular subject um, during the message. And one of the things you learn after you've preached for a while, it doesn't matter what you thought you were going to preach on. Once you're done preaching, it might have gone another direction. And if it did, just accept the fact that's the direction it was supposed to go. And so... Uh, I'm going to preach basically what I did two weeks ago, though I'm going to make sure and get that other point in there. And uh, instead of just calling it that, we're just, we'll title this sermon, and 
because we feel that we need titles for sermons. We'll title it uh, Confidence in the Gospel. Now, the gospel is designed not only to seek, find, and gather in to the fold all of God's sheep. Now, it's designed to do that, and it will do it. But it's also designed to give to us who have already been gathered into that fold a confidence and assurance that that gospel which has sought us, found us, and gathered us together unto Christ shall find complete fulfillment and that we shall experience the fullness of it. Because let's face it, you know, people say, well, I'm saved. And that's fine. That's fine. Even the scriptures talk that way. But people are, uh, people get argued. When is a man saved? Well, he's, he was saved in eternity. He was saved when Christ died for him. He's saved when the Spirit calls him. You know what? All through his life he's saved. And then finally, when everything is done, we can say, we are saved. There's no more saving to be done. And you say, well, there isn't any more saving to be done. Do you think you're going to be like this forever? You think you don't have trouble from which you need saving now? It is written, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You don't think you need to be saved from death yet? You see, God's salvation, from his perspective, is done. But we can know that fact. But that's because he looks from the perspective of one who dwells outside of time and space. And to him, everything is a now. You know, all the, we, we think of a succession of events. He sees them all as a single event. You and I experience salvation not as a singular one-time event all at once. It is something which God purposed in eternity and through a series of events brings about for everyone to whom he purposed to give it. And even in the um, outworking or God's working of salvation, there are, I don't know another word to use it, stages. I've heard people say that when Christ said it is finished, all salvation was completely done. I know what they mean. But the fact is, all salvation isn't even done yet. And it won't be done for any of us until we are like Christ, for he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the end point. That's the goal. He's predestined us to be adopted as sons. And adoption doesn't mean being brought into the family, the old way of, I mean, it could include that, but the way Paul uses it in speaking of us being predestined to be adopted as sons, it means to be made heirs, to receive that adoption, to experience it. We're like children within a family. Yes, we are heirs, but we don't possess those things of which we are heirs, that waits maturity. That waits the adoption. 
The resurrection is referred to as the redemption of our bodies and even the adoption of the sons of God. Nonetheless, the gospel is, Paul calls it in Romans chapter 1, the power of God in salvation, and it's the power of God in salvation in any way that you want to describe the gospel. That is, it is the power of God in salvation in its working. That is, the the, the good news, the gospel of God, as Paul calls it in Romans chapter 1, his sovereign purpose to save a people, it's powerful. But the gospel is not simply a plan of God, it's also a message. And that message is powerful in the hands of God. Now, it's not powerful in our hands. Really, it isn't. How do we know? (laughs) How long have you been preaching it, brother? Uh, Well, let's say, yes, it's powerful because the fact that there's anybody here, it shows that in the preaching of it, there's power. But if it was powerful than in our hands, and I don't want to act like we're more merciful than God because we're not, but if we had the power, everybody we preach to would be saved. We would do that. And you say, well, why doesn't God do that? If it means anything to you when you get to heaven, ask him. Really. I one time something... I was working with a guy, this is clear back when I lived in Owensboro, and I, we were doing carpentry work together, and something happened. And I said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why that happened. And he said, why? Will you care? And um, he was one of those believers, and I wish I had more of his character. He was very calm, very staid, looked at things as they are, you know. Are we going to care why he did that? Our Lord said, I thank you, uh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. And he gave the why. For even so, it seemed like a good idea to you. And that's enough. That's enough for us. And if he wants to reveal, almost hate to say thought process, because God doesn't even have a thought process. A process implies time. But if we wanted to know why he reveals it to babes and withholds it from the wise and prudent, and if he wants to tell us, he may. But for now, like children, we just say, well, our father thought that was a good idea. And that's enough. But the gospel is designed to give those of us who have partaken of its first fruits to be assured that the full harvest will come. Not only the full harvest that all whom God chose shall be saved, but each of us have experienced first fruits of the blessings of the gospel, and that is an assurance to us the full harvest of those blessings shall be ours in due time. Everything God intended us to have by Jesus Christ, shall be ours. 
It's already got her name written up there. It's already a treasure stored in heaven beyond what anything on earth can corrupt. And it awaits our arrival at the Lord's appointed time. Then we shall receive all that we have been promised. For now, what do we have? We have the Holy Spirit as an earnest. Now, it's not as though the Holy Spirit's a small thing. Um, you know, we're not trying to say that, and Paul wasn't trying to say that. I, I mean, if the fact that the Holy Spirit is given to us as an earnest, well, if something like the Holy Spirit, someone like the Holy Spirit, is the earnest of the inheritance, what must the inheritance be? But that is our assurance. The Holy Spirit has been given to us, has been, has shown us what the truth is. Most people come into church here, pass up a lot of churches along the way. And you know some the people in them are every bit as good as we are. Let's never get the idea because we believe sovereign grace, we're better people than those who don't. We pass them up. Why? Because we're better? Because we're smarter? No. Because we have a different message. And, you know, here's something I've experienced and probably you have too. People from other churches will come visit with us and they listen and, oh, that's what we preach. And I'm saying, no, it's not. I mean, I don't tell them that. I long ago gave up the, the um, practice of telling people they were lost. If the gospel doesn't convince them they're lost, me telling them isn't going to help them out. And if they believed it because I said it, they believed it for the wrong reason. I just leave them with the gospel. After all, it is the power of God into salvation. And adding my power to it is only going to take away from it. But you can sit in one of their services and right away, oh man, I... Wish I hadn't come. <laughs> Wish I wasn't here. It's a different message. And this message contains absolute, unshakable confidence. Now, that doesn't mean we experience that emotionally. And there's a reason for that. Our emotions are not the product only of those things we understand in the spirit. We were born in the flesh. And we are every bit as much in the flesh right now as we were the moment we were born. When God worked in us that which is called the new birth... It was an enlivening of that part of our nature which is called spirit. Now, this is the best I can understand it, you know. Um, there's lots of uh, needless debate goes on on the nature of man and all that. And I say it's needless debate because the scriptures do not ever give a very definitive definition 
of just how man is made. We know that man is unique among the uh, creation, created beings of uh, well, the universe. We know that there are animals. And we know that there are spiritual beings. That is, beings which are altogether spirit. You say, well, what's spirit? I don't know. <laughs> so far as I can tell from the scriptures, man is the only creature that is a combination of flesh and spirit. And while I do not know what spirit uh, is, I know what it does. God is spirit. And the spirit of a man is that aspect of a man that can know, believe, and love God. Our flesh cannot do that any more than the flesh of our dog can. You say, well, a dog doesn't have the mental capacity to know God. Knowing God is not a mental capacity. Knowing God is not a, a matter of <clears throat> being able to, uh, what would be the appropriate word? Appropriate word. Well, understand a series of, or, or set of doctrines. Understanding God or knowing God is a matter of knowing a person, knowing Him. But the gospel, in it, is contained everything necessary to make us, at least spiritually speaking, confident, unshakably confident of our eternal welfare. But the flesh, the flesh believes nothing but what it can see. And we use C to include all the senses. There are fleshly senses, you know, five and some say six because they say the sense of balance is a separate sense. Okay. However many senses we have. Our natural senses, if we call it that, they're well suited to discover the things of this creation. They are wholly incapable of discovering anything about God and the uncreated existence. That's why people <clears throat> can study and learn about Jesus the man. But that's as far as it'll get with them. They can learn the doctrine of the deity of Christ and say, I believe that Christ is God, but they have no clue what they're saying because they cannot, they cannot know God. But our flesh in its present state is utterly incapable of believing the gospel. Now let me issue a disclaimer here. I understand there are some people for whom God or to whom God has given this grace that there, at least as according to their confession, there is no doubt of any kind in their mind regarding 
the gospel and their interest in it. And I'm envious of them because I'm not that kind of person. Scott once said in sermon, he may have it may have been something he'd say from time to time, but I remember it on one occasion. He said, he, he made a point, and he says, now, I'm not preaching to you, I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> Let me tell you the truth a bit. Do you know what my faith gets down to sometimes? Well, if this isn't the gospel, there isn't one. If this God of, of the, described in the scriptures, if he's not God, there isn't one. Sometimes that's about as high as my feelings of faith can get. Now, when you go through that kind of stuff, when you live there, for the most part, what would give you any confidence then that you are among them who really believe? I never or rarely ever have a person to investigate anything about themselves in order to give them any kind of confidence about um, their interest in God's grace, their experience of God's grace. But there is one thing that the scriptures do say about believers. They don't quit. Even when they do not feel any faith at all. Even when they lie in their bed at night and think all of this just sounds like so much pie in the sky and a sweet by and by stuff. Even when and I'll confess to it, because it's true. You may, you know, we may as well tell the truth. We're not trying to pretend here. Even when you lie in bed and wonder if there really is a God, nonetheless, you keep going. You don't go elsewhere, and I'm not talking about to another church, though that could be one aspect of going elsewhere. I mean, you don't look to anything else. And one reason, and again, I hesitate to do this because to say these things, because I know you can get in a state you think you did look other places or, you know, whatnot. But what I'm saying here is our faith or the, let's call it saving faith, you know, the faith that saves in the way the scriptures talk about faith saving, that faith, it is not simply a matter of, that at some point in time, the faith you had in something else was turned to Christ. That would just be fleshly faith turning to one false religion unto the proper object of true religion, but without any real understanding of it. There are a lot of people that believe in Jesus Christ. That is, they believe that he existed, they believe he died, and they believe that the ones that believe on him will be saved. And that's just their religious beliefs. 
And it's no different a kind of faith than the guy over here who believes that it's, well, looking to Christ plus water baptism. All they did was change their doctrines. That faith which saves is the gift of God. It's the expression of spiritual life. And it's a faith that does not exist in any form. It's not pointed to, it never is pointed to anything other than Christ. Because it comes from the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God does not merely redirect our faith. He gives us a kind of faith that did not exist before. It's just as our Lord Jesus Christ said, I have come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. And in the religion I was brought up in, uh, the conservative fundamentalism of the 60s and 70s, um, they they talk about you can have the abundant life. And they they talk about the abundant life in terms of always being happy and having victory over this and all that. And they act as though all it is is God making our life more abundant. They're forgetting what he said at the beginning. I've come that they might have life, which means they don't have life. They're alive, but they don't have the life he's talking about. It's a different life. It's a spiritual life. He gives it to them, and he gives it to them to the full. It's not a sick spiritual life. It's not a weak spiritual life. It's the full-fledged thing. And that life expresses itself in a kind of faith that did not even exist until that life came. But we are alive in the Spirit, and until we die, we're alive in the flesh at the same time. And we've got two messages going through one consciousness. And that's what creates the doubts we have. It's the conflict. It's the warfare between flesh and spirit. Now, what gives us confidence in all of this? Well, right here in verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us. If God be for us. Now here's, to me, the most important thing to take away from this. The apostle puts all of our salvation in God. He didn't say if God be for us and we believe. He'd just say if God be for us. Who can be against us? One of the commentaries I picked up along the way, and this was in my days of, you know, when I was still in a religion that uh, promoted free willism. I'm not sure, but I think that the writer was a guy named Oliver B. Green, but I'm not sure. But anyway, it was, it was on the book of Romans, and he gets to this part. And actually, he was down here at the end where it says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And he says, of course you understand that he means that nothing except our own selves. We could separate us from the love of God. 
Well, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And, you know, I am much less concerned about what the devil can do to me or what the enemies of the gospel can do to me, much less concerned about what they might do to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ, much less concerned about them than I am about what I might do. And if I am not included in all those things that cannot separate me from the love of God in Christ, then just count me lost. Really? Do you you believe that? I mean, do you honestly think you've done enough that if you could be separated from the love of God in Christ, you would have been separated from the love of God in Christ? You see why it is that we do not go out and tell people God loves them? Because according to the Bible, if God loves you, he's for you, nothing can be against you. I know there's lots of things against us, but it means nothing can be against us successfully. The love of God is the certainty of salvation. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, means something. It means something in the destinies of those men. If God had had the same attitude towards both of those men, their end would have been the same. So we don't tell people God loves you. Why? We don't know. Now, if they profess faith in Christ, and you know, if someone does and is content with listening to the the, the gospel of God's grace, then um, we've got no reason to doubt that they are. And therefore we can say to them, as Paul said to the churches, God loves you. And I say to any believer here, God loves you. How do I know? Well, you wouldn't believe if God didn't love you. However, when I say, when I say that even to a group of people who assemble in the name of Christ, I say it on this foundation or on this assumption that you actually do believe. But until a person believes... We have no reason to think that God loves them. Now, maybe he does. And if he does, in time they will believe. Because God's love is real love. If you love someone, now you think of this, if you love someone, You will do anything and everything in your power not to lose them. Right? And if you love someone who does not at that point love you, ask Bonnie about this, you will do anything and everything in your power to pursue them until they do love you. But our wisdom and power has limits, doesn't it? Our patience has limits on it.
I set my eye on Bonnie. Poor thing. Wouldn't leave her alone. Really? <laughs> and to, you know, there was a rule that the guys couldn't go into the girl's dorm, and that's about the only safe place she had when it came to me, you know. But you know, there was even one time when I had decided, okay, I, I've been after this long enough. I might as well just accept it. She's not going to reciprocate. And um, I even acted on that, but God's providence was at work, and she reached out somewhat, not even knowing, I don't think, that I had made that decision in my, my mind. So, just, you know, God's providence works in mysterious ways for sure. But we have limits. God doesn't. If he loves a person, he's going to have that person. If he loves a person, a time will come when that person begins to love him back. Because God will not his, let his love go unrequited. We have to put up with that, don't we? We love those who do not love us back. We desire the affections of, or we have affections for those who will never have affections back toward us. And it hurts. God never hurts. God, God's never up in the horse saying, oh, I, I don't know how I can go on. William Shakespeare could never write a good play about God's love because, you know, with him, you know, there's got to be a tragedy at the end of it. There's got to be Romeo and Juliet or it ain't worth um, writing. No, God is going to have everyone he wants to have. That's why it could be written. And we know that God works all things according to the count. <coughs> Excuse me, <laughs> wrong scripture. It's true, but it's not the one I was going for. And we know that in all things God works for the good of them who love him. Now he doesn't do that because they love him. They love him because he first loved them. And that's the real foundation of his working all things to their good. But Paul put it the way he did because it would be little comfort to us uh, if he said God works all things uh, for the good of those whom he loves because he wonder, well, well, does he love me? And so he put it in some terms that we could know whether or not it applies to us. But if God be for us, who can be against us? Imagine, and this is this is actually the the visual that came in my mind. Here's me. And over there is all the things, whether they be forces or spirits or my own sinful nature, whatever. Over there is everything that would desire my destruction. And every time one of them approaches me, 
It's like God comes down like a thick steel plate, boom, between them and me. And every time they approach me, they come up against the impenetrable wall of God Himself. They can't touch me until they can overpower God. Consider that, brethren. Now, for a lot of people, that provides them no comfort because their view of God is there are things that can overpower God. God wants to save you, but you won't let him. Well, then forget salvation by God. Because if something so wavering, so weak as my will can stop him, I figure any, pretty much anything else, a light breeze could stop him. He is an impenetrable wall. That's why Martin Luther could write, and this was based on, is the 96th Psalm? I can't remember. I think it's 96th Psalm. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark, never failing. They eventually breached the walls of natural Jerusalem. Because they were just natural walls, and if you've got a natural army big enough, it can do it. But the heavenly Jerusalem, its walls are God. Try getting over that one. Try busting through that one. Not any single thing, not all created things joined together can mount an offen- a successful offensive against God. If there's anything the scriptures teach us, it's this. Salvation is of Jehovah, is of God in every aspect of it. There's not a weak spot in the wall because there is not any part in the wall that is not God. You say, oh, but that wall is made up of the promises of God. Wait a minute. Promises of God are wonderful. But the only reason they have any power is because they are the promises of God. You listen to preachers on TV, they'll make all kinds of promises. But you can't find God making the promises they make. And they'll tell you, well, if you, you know, name it, claim it type of business, and you name it and you didn't get it, And then you're wanting to say they were wrong, you know. No, no, you didn't have enough faith. All the power of God is not dependent on my faith. The power of God created my faith. The power of God sustains my faith. We talk about the perseverance of the saints. Brethren, I realize as we perceive it, the saints persevere. But do you know why? And this would be a much better name for the doctrine. It's the perseverance of God. It's God who works in you to will and do of his good pleasure. And he that began that good work, he'll perfect it until the day of Christ. We keep believing. That's true. But here's the reason why. God keeps sustaining and working within us. If God is for us, 
who or what can be against us. And then he starts to detail some things. He says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now people say, yeah, see there, Jesus Christ died for all, because it says he was given up for us all. Remember, every letter is written to somebody. And you don't take to yourself those things which are written down in a letter to someone else. Said he delivered him up for us all. Well, who would that be? Well, we're not going to go through all the things, but it would be the saints, which mean those that have been called by the Spirit of God, set apart. It would be those whom God chose. But if you want to look at the closest description, of those he means by us all. It's them that love God. That's back in verse 28. And once again, that's how Paul describes these people because he gives a description that we can look at and determine whether or not these things apply to us. Now, if he... If he gave Christ, when actually it says he delivered him up, that's more than simply gave. He delivered him up. And um, to be delivered up in that sense is to, well, he's talking about there being delivered up to be crucified, to be our sacrifice. Delivered up to justice. Now, if God did that, will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, once again, a little honesty. I can't think of anybody in this world for whom I would willingly deliver up one of my children unto death. It's not going to happen. And as one preacher said, aren't you glad I'm not God? God's the only one that would do that. And, and he delivered up his son who pleased him in every way. I love my children. In general, I'm pleased with them. I think they're good people. But let's face it, the best lesson in total depravity is children. You know, people that don't believe in total depravity, I say, did you ever try to raise kids? <laughs> you don't need, a, you know, a theology book to teach you total depravity. You find out it's, it's in them. And I didn't, you know, my, my parents thought very highly of me, but not everything I did pleased them. Everything the Lord Jesus Christ did pleased his father. He was loved to the father not simply because he was the son. There was, that was in it. But everything that God would love, he found it in his son. This 
is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And he gave up that son for his people. Now, having given up him, is that, and he gave him up for us in what, what condition were we in? Rebellion? Utter wickedness? Total depravity? At that point, Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ was given up, delivered over for us. Will he not then freely, graciously give us all things? Is he going to make the payment? Now forget about you and me and our thoughts about this. Is God going to make the payment and then not assure that the uh, promised purchase is delivered. I said I'd never give one of my children for someone else, but if I did, you better be sure I'd say, listen, I gave up my child for that one. You're not going to take vengeance on them. Right? Do you think God would do less? Will he give the son and then not give us all those things which were in him? Is he going to give his son for us but not give us the forgiveness of sins that's in him? Well, that would be absolutely ridiculous of God to act that way. Though that is the way God's preached up in most churches. He gave them up for everybody. But you know, he's not going to give all things in him to everybody. I'm so glad Paul wrote this scripture. He will give us all things. All things necessary to this life and to the life to come. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Justification is not nearly as complicated a concept as a lot of people would like to make it. The word simply means to declare righteous. It is identical. I mean, it's it's mostly a courtroom word. And it is simply a verdict rendered against someone who's been charged. And it's a verdict of not guilty. Now we say not guilty. Justification says righteous. But when you read about justification in um, Romans chapter 4, I believe it is, and there's several words and phrases he uses that mean exactly the same thing. Justification means exactly the same thing as your sins not being imputed to you. You're not charged with them. You're free of them. Justification means the very same thing as having your sins forgiven. Because Paul says that... um, David describes the uh, blessedness of the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. (laughs) It's all the same thing. So we don't have to get complex about it. But here's the key. 
Who justifies? God. Now, in our judicial system, if a man is ever justified of the things he's been charged with, he can never be charged with them again. Now, if the the British TV shows that Bonnie and I watch occasionally, if they're right, evidently in England, the prosecution can appeal the sentence as well. And so a person who had been found not guilty by a jury of his peers might be brought up again. Well, here's the thing. (laughs) With God, there is no appeal because there is no higher court than God's court. So no matter what the rules are about double jeopardy, every believer has already been tried in the highest court there is and has been declared not guilty. Then who's going to be able to come in then and say, wait a minute. I've got some charges. Some charges I think that you missed. Charges God missed? God knows all the charges already. Why? Well, every one of them's against him. That is, everything you're charged with is a sin against him. It's not just a breaking of the law. It was a personal affront to him. He knows about it. And knowing all of that, he said, not guilty. Who's going to be able to bring anything in? You can't unjustify somebody that God justified because there's no, uh, you can't change God and there's no higher court to appeal to. And then he says, who is he that condemns? Excuse me. Yeah, who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died. So it says, see, our salvation is dependent on God and Christ. Who do you think Christ is? <laughs> He's God. Now, he's God in human form, but that doesn't make him any less God. When Christ saves us, that's God saving us. And here's his point. Who um, shall condemn? Christ died. Now, why does he say Christ died? Well, that begs this question. Why did Christ die? Because he was condemned. Condemnation brings death, period. And there's no death without condemnation, ever. Christ was condemned, so he died. So how is anybody going to condemn me? If he died for me, how can I be condemned? Because he was condemned for the things I did, and he died, and he's the only one who ever died. So wait a minute. The Bible gives these genealogies that says Andy died. Andy died, you know. Well, you've got to understand the context in which the genealogies are written. They're just talking about life and death as we see it. Do you know why hell goes on forever? Hell is called eternal death, and it's eternal because the people there are always dying and never dead. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appear to the Lord Jesus and discuss with him 
the death that he would accomplish in Jerusalem. Brother Tim James said, whoever considered death an accomplishment, it was quite an accomplishment. We have those who never die. We have those who are never done dying. And we have one who died. Everything that death means, Christ experienced it. And he's the only one that can say, it is finished. It's accomplished. Death. And if Christ died, and he says <clears throat> more than that, he is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Our Lord died. Okay, that's good. I, I mean, you know, that was necessary. The wages of sin is death. But was his death a suitable death? God said yes. And how do we know he said yes? He said, come out of there. <laughs> the graves for the unrighteous. By your death you put away the sin that you bore. Once again you have no sin. So come out of the grave. You don't belong there. And our Lord came out, but that wasn't all. He made a 40-day stop. You know, the resurrection was just the beginning of his ascension to the throne. But he stopped here for 40 days to give some final instructions to his disciples and to prove to them visibly his resurrection and said he ascended on high. He it was that came up and said, oh, um, <clears throat> Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up ye everlasting doors. He's the one that said that. He approaches, and of course this is all put within the imagery of great cities of that time with their huge gates, and their gates didn't swing out, they went up and down. And so Christ, who had been on earth, he'd been in the belly of the earth, he'd been into, uh, it says Hades, that's, you know, that's the region of the dead, he comes out, and he comes to the city of the living the city of the living God, as it were. And he says, lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be ye lift up in your everlasting doors. Why? So that the king of glory may come in. Who's the king of glory? Jehovah, God Almighty. Me. <laughs> Me. And they opened up those doors. And our Lord Jesus walked in. And there's his father, God the Father, on the throne, and he says to, to the God-man, he says to our, our God and Savior, sit here till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And our Lord sat down at his Father's right hand. Now this is all imagery. I don't think the Lord's been sitting down for 2,000 years. I, you know. But the point is, he is at the, the seat of favor with the God of the universe. As a man, he's there. Henry used to say, there's a man in glory, which gives me hope that this man can be in glory. And God's making his enemies a footstool for his feet. But he's making intercession. He said, boy, he's awful busy then. He must be talking constantly because there's believers all over the world sinning and they need intercession. 
His presence there is the intercession. Five bleeding wounds he wears. Received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive. Forgive they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. The father hears him pray. His dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the pleadings of his son. And the spirit answers to the blood. And tells me. I am born of God. Christ died. And then he gets. Beginning in verse 35. Who shall separate us. From the love of Christ. He talks about events. He talks about. Death and life. Angels. Principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, any other created thing. Now, do you know what that includes? Everything other than God. Everything other than God is created. So nothing other than God can separate us from the love of God. And love's one of those things that never stops. So God's not going to separate us from his love because he's not going to quit loving us. He's already loved us with an everlasting love. No use giving up now. (laughs) Oh, brethren. This... Flesh is going to trouble us from now until it dies. But there is no good reason, no good reason for us to ever be worried about our souls in the least. Which means we have no reason to worry about anything else. If we are those whom God loves. If we are those of whom it could be said, God is for them. And how do we know that? Well, we love God. And if that's, if you're going through one of those times, you think, I don't know if I do love God. Because we we ask those questions of ourselves. Then another way to put it is this. Has God enabled you to see that Jesus Christ is a sufficient Savior for someone like you? I mean, the only reason we doubt is because we think we're not good enough. Well, have you been enabled to see that bad as you are, Christ is Savior enough for you. Just as you are. Not as you hope to be. Not as you once were. Just as you are. If you can see that, 
It's because you have eyes to see. Not everybody can see that. And the proof of it is this. They cannot follow a religion where they're not involved. It's that simple. They always find a way to get something about their natural selves in there. If you can truly say, I'm not good enough, never was, and never can be, you're the kind of people God saves. In fact, if you really believe that, he's already begun that good work in you. And he's not going to quit. You may want to, but he won't. And that's why someday you'll stand before him in perfection and say, worthy art thou, for you redeemed us out of every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Turn this thing off.